So who is our guest presenter today? I feel that he needs no introduction. Indeed, if I have to read through a bio, which seems so ridiculous, um, it could take us a long while. Here's the artist William Kentridge, the renowned artist William Kentridge, and uh, one of the deep thinkers, not just of South Africa, but in the world as well. William, thank you so much for joining us here on The Jet. Pleasure to be with you, Michelle. William, what a beautiful first song. And... uh, just it is it is a gorgeous song um it's one of the songs which i keep on listening to again and again and when i'm working with musicians often i play it to them and say keep this in mind as kind of an emotional and it's simple and it's uh, transformed from where one expects it to be i think also maybe it's i listen to it and i'm i'm I instantly sort of put my world view onto it and my world view right now is obviously a covid world view which which is one of great anxiety, of great tragedy, sometimes of great joy as well in those moments where you uh, are able to connect and communicate with someone you love. Perhaps you could just uh, give us your worldview of that. Well, I'm sure it's it's extraordinary right in the feels to be right in the heart of the storm at the moment with our figures going skyrocketing over these last few weeks as our lockdown has also ended. So we're in that um, strange, very strange position. And it's uh, it's a shocking time. It's been a very anxious time. Yeah. I mean, there have been several people associated with the studio who have been ill with, with COVID. Yeah. And um, so I was aware of this extraordinary storm outside the studio and also inside the studio. And at the same time, there's been these three months of being able to quietly work without having to travel, without having to do a million other projects, just to keep working in the studio. So for people fortunate enough for their work to be at home and in that kind of place, which benefits from solitary activity, it's been also a very productive time. William, I want to talk to you. I'll take you back a little bit in time. And yeah. I, I read this. Or I don't know if it was in, if I read it or maybe I watched it somewhere where <laughs> you used the wonderful term rescued by failures. And uh, you were speaking about your early life as a, an actor, someone who went and studied at the Lecoq School. You were then, of course, talking about the fact that you were also an artist and then you tried to be a filmmaker. And you described your journey as one of being rescued by failures. Of course, in the business world, they say, oh, yes, it's great to fail, you know, fail quickly or whatever. But, the, but to be rescued by failures is quite a wonderful, a, a wonderful term. And I wonder if you could maybe just expand on that for well, our listeners. <clears throat> I think it, in effect, what I was, <clears throat> sorry, what I was saying was that there were different things I attempted. And fortunately, I was so bad at them (laughs) that it was not possible to have pursued them, such as being a professional actor, uh, painting in oil paints, um, being a filmmaker. All of these things I tried to do but had failed at and failed clearly enough for me not to have kept on struggling to try to do the same thing. So that was the rescue, that the failure was clear enough to know I had to move on. But in retrospect, the bits of information or training that I had in acting, in working with theater, in working with film, all came back later into the 
practice I have in the studio, which involves theatre, performance, filmmaking, as well as drawing. And uh, if I'd stayed only being an actor, I would never have been a good actor, and I would never (laughs) have been able to do all the other things that have come through that. So I think that's the, you know, if one takes a retrospective view, they were fortunate failures. At the time, of course, they're very painful failures. They just feel like failures. You don't think, oh, this is good, now I can go into something else. You think, what am I going to do? This is what I wanted to do. This is who I thought I would be, and I can't be that person. You know, um, it's interesting. There's a book by a guy, I think is David Epstein. Not, not any, no relation as far yeah. as I know to the Epstein. But like, yeah, yeah. And the book is called Range. And it talks to the idea of how um, it is sometimes better in this complex world as opposed to a world that may not have been that complex historically. But that in this complex world, it is better to be a generalist and to be able to um, access from all sorts of different spaces, which are, is in many ways you're being rescued by failure because what it does do is it opens up this wonderful opportunity of collaboration, which you are the king of in many ways. I think that's true. I mean, I take it back. I look back to 105 years ago to the Dadaists in Zurich Mm. who were kind of revolting against what they saw as the damage Western culture had done to itself which had led to the First World War. And they're saying, if this is the good logic of Europe that has led to this calamity, let's rather find some illogic. Yeah. And so in the attempt to kind of dismantle the cultural world, they accepted all practices as part of what they did. So if you were an artist, you could read a poem. You could read a poem backwards. You could make a poem up from cutting lines from a newspaper article. You could sing a song. Your paintings could just be found objects or collages. So they did this all as a revolt against the idea of culture. But it then, of course, in the last hundred years, has become part of the vocabulary of (laughs) artists and writers. And so everything is possible after that. So you can say, well, I'm an artist, but my artwork today is going to be this opera or this theater performance or this poem or the sound piece, which is, in fact, not a luxury that poets or writers or dancers have. Yeah, um, that is a kind of a fortunate and anomalous position of people who think of themselves as visual artists, the latitude we are given. And so in this case, it kind of was a great revelation to realize that the oil painting on canvas, what one thinks what I used to think of as a child, of what it is to be an artist, is a minute corner of what it is and what is possible, both visually in terms of material, but also in terms of ways of imaginatively reconstructing the world to try to make sense of it, which is what happens in the studio, in which painting is one of many, many different possibilities. So, you know, here's here's the thing. You talk about what it is to be an artist. I suppose if we look at um, the question as opposed to maybe the answer is what it is to be an artist, what about what it is to not be an artist? Oh, I think there's a people who say that everyone is an artist. Um, I've never quite, it's never quite made sense to me. <laughs> me um, everybody is able to do different things. Yeah. But the point about being an artist has to do with the dedication to the practice and to the learning of the grammar of whatever it is you're doing, whichever form it is. 
And it is the time spent rearranging fragments of the world into something new, whether it's a drawing or a song or a or a piece of theater. Um, it's that giving yourself over to the medium and the demands of the medium, which is, I think, what constitutes the the artist. Even if it is simply finding an object in the world and calling that object in the world your um, your artwork, hmm. um, there's a certain sharpness, diligence, openness to what's happening that will either render that interesting or not, or not interesting. Yeah, or plain, damn, dull, and boring. Absolutely. William, you, um, we're going to be talking in depth about um, the Centre for Good Idea and this wonderful yeah. project, Pepper's Ghost, which just like blew my mind when I watched it. But uh, I want to take you on a slightly different uh, little path up the mountain and sure. to your choice of book, which was, I-, I was surprised, not because the choice of book that you chose was um, a horrible book. It's a fantastic book. But for someone who appears to be reading all the time. I mean, it, it seems that yeah. you are constantly, if not in the studio making art, then you are constantly in the studio reading about um, what it means to be human, actually. Mm. And you chose 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I did. It was, it's one of those impossible things, like, say, choose your three favorite songs. I don't have a favorite song. I don't have three. I don't have 30. <laughs> but it was saying, know, okay, so from a whole large number, here are three songs that are uh, that are different and, and great, great, uh, great songs. For now. And the same with the book. I thought, okay, it's a bit boring to say Anna Karenina, which is a yeah. greater novel than 100 Years of Solitude, or to talk still about Itilus Fego. And yeah. I'm busy reading the novel Stalingrad by Vasily Grossman, whose book Life and Fate is one of the other great, great books of the last century. Um, but there was something about the way in which Marquez, and that was the first Marquez I read, um, opened the possibility of what what parts of the world can come into a book or into a painting and how it can be rearranged and how, I suppose it's, it's, it's that rather than a particular love for magic realism. Magic realism is one way of rearranging the, con- the conventional and everyday world into a way that makes you see it new. But there are other things in it. I mean, the opening line of that novel, which is something to the effect of many years later, mm. as he faced the firing squad for the third time, Colonel Aureliano Buendia would remember the time when his father took him or had taken him to see ice. So you get like five different time frames there. You've got it in, in the future thinking about something that happened way back in the past, plus somehow he had to escape that moment. So in that first sentence of that novel, you're completely held in saying one's conventional ideas of a narrative progression are yeah, exactly. turned on their turned on their head. So I think I was thinking of that sentence when I had to think of some book to name for this conversation this morning. So I'm happy to stand by my choice. I'm happy for you to stand by your choice as well. So William, you know, um, it's at the beginning of this year, and my, my, how things have changed, but at the beginning of this year, I decided, all right, I'm going to start my year by reading a classic. So I read um, Zola's Germinal, which I found brilliant, absolutely brilliant. 
Um, also because it seemed to me that even though this was a book about France at the um, end of the 19th century and it was about mining, it felt like it was a book that could so easily be about South Africa mining today. Mm-hmm. Um, but what struck me was this idea of going back and reading the classics and what those classics are and why they're important to go back to. And I know that you constantly do go back to them. I mean, the other day you were, uh, I, I saw something that you had, you know, you were talking about Plato's um, uh, The Cave and, and this right. constant going back. And even if we look at Pepper's Ghost, which we'll talk to later, is about going back. There's the Franz Kafka story. There's a series of like really great um, uh, narratives in that particular um, season as well. What is it about the going back? that you think is important for you? Well, I think if you're a novelist, then obviously you're going to keep on going forward. Yeah. But if you're relying on other people's writing as the starting point for text that one's going to be working with, then everything's in the past, whether it's three years in the past or a thousand years in the past or eight years. But there are also particular strands of thinking about writing uh, which strike me as having a very contemporary understanding of the world. And so one of those has to do with the nature of the absurd. Yes. Um, of taking a logic that's gone awry and following it through. So that could be in a Gogol short story, like the, like the nose, a story about yes. a person, short story man who loses his nose and tries to find it. So it's patently absurd, but the absurdity is followed with great seriousness. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's a lesson for how one does make uh, a sense of the world, and certainly it's a lesson for how the studio and what one does in the studio operates. Um, I'm reading a lot of Mayakovsky, which are Russian poems written, you know, poems written in the Soviet era between 1913, before the revolution, to when he committed suicide in 1930. Yeah. But they are so much about a world in turmoil, a world in which a city is a kind of character in itself. And that feels, you know, it's not the same city as Johannesburg in 2020, but the sense of saying to describe that world, you need to see what is happening on the streets, the crazy different things that go through the streets. And allow the, and not to be bound by a sort of photographic representation of what you are seeing, but to say that the chaos and the mixture is in fact the truest Representation. So that would be Mayakovsky, who's writing 100 years ago um, I, from where we are now. I mean, I'm trying... And they are classics, yeah. and they are completely contemporary also. You know, I, I don't... I, 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 may be, I may be mistaken, but in, um, you, in one of the, the pieces in, in the, 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 the production, which we'll talk about now, yeah. The Pepper's Pig... You, you use the words, gigantic grief hangs over the city. Um, I'm not sure if it's in the Mayakovsky piece. It is. It's a, it's a line from Mayakovsky saying, a gigantic grief hang over the town, and a hundred tiny griefs. And if you have to say where we are now, that's, well, exactly. that's, that's kind of uh, an astonishing image of, of a city and all the little droplets inside the city. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, I noted it and I, it was profound, actually. It was like a moment of, but that could be us, that could be me, you know. Yeah. 
which was, I mean, as you say, it, it may be words. It's like watching when, when we saw the market theater production, production of UNESCO's Rhinoceros, which yeah. is completely absurd and yet absolutely about the now, the present, the kind yeah. of who we are right now, where we're at right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that that is my feeling. I mean, there, there are a lot of texts which come, say, from Swana proverbs and Ghanaian proverbs, yeah. um, which also are from, there's a collection that Sol Plaiki put together in 1913, so it's 107 years ago, of uh, proverbs from what's now Botswana. And there are, there are beautiful lines that still echo completely. There's some that are very much just about rural life and proverbs about that, but other wonderful ones that stick in my head, like God's opinion is unknown. It seems to be where we are now, also. Um, and uh, you know, there are lines also from different poets, from a Finnish poet from the 1950s. They're like, "God, his plants and trees turned out better than his people." <laughs> um, and the line, which is the basis for the Center for the Less Good Idea, when the good doctor can't cure you, find the less good doctor. Yeah. You know, when great ideas no longer work, start with much smaller, different ideas. So there's a kind of an eclecticism, both in my reading and in the lines that get written down in notebooks to use with uh, projects that will, are still to come. Just give us that, um, the, the, uh, God's, the, with plants, uh, just quote that again. Oh, God, his, his trees and plants turned out better than his people. It is so ironic, given that we, I mean, I'm thinking about that, yeah. I'm thinking, well, here we go into the Anthropocene age, which is yeah. all about humanity, or not humanity, yes. not humanity at all, but about the human age, and yet yeah. all his other ages seem to have been far better in so many other ways. Your second yeah. choice of song, and uh, I agree with you, you could probably put a, a set play for hours and hours, but I did love your second choice as well, Tom Waits. Good. Tell us about it. Oh, well... There's something about Tom Waits. He has, in one way, you would say, the most unbeautiful voice. <laughs> Gravelly, you can taste all the southern comfort and the packets of cigarettes yeah. uh, and share that in the voice. And so it's a mixture of a roughness of voice, which holds one. I mean, it would not work to get an opera singer to sing a Tom Waits song. It needs the... So there's something about the appropriateness of the roughness of the voice together with the lyrics. In the song I chose, I said I wanted to have a Tom Waits song. Um, if you had the first song, which is so lyrical and so movingly beautiful, this is something very, very different. But the lines are just so witty and so clever. And you kind of think, God, if only I thought of that, I could have written it. But of course, one couldn't. Tom Waits. Well, the man who's stepping right up as our guest presenter is none other than the creative, the artist, the thinker, William Kentridge. And we'll be chatting to him when we get back right after Zoy. Michelle Constant on SAFM. Zycon, she'll be back again later. Our guest on the line is William Kentridge. He's a South African artist. He's known for his drawings, his prints, his animated films, and much, much more. He also works with a project or was uh, the founder of a project called the Centre for the Less Good Idea. We heard a little earlier as to how that title came about. And uh, most recently, the Centre for the Less Good Idea has presented Season 7, which is um, Season 7 of Pepper's 
I want. I always want to say Peppa's pig, but uh, it's Peppa's ghost, and we'll find out a whole lot more about that one in a moment. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM Destination Unknown. So I'm Michelle Constant, and our guest on the line is artist William Kentridge. William. Pepper's Ghost. Yeah, yeah. It's such an interesting. Yeah. It's such. I hadn't. I did not know about it until I watched the project, uh, which is on virtual um, screening at the as part of the virtual National Arts Festival. Tell us um, what Pepper's Ghost is technically. <laughs> well, the Pepper's Ghost is a 19th century theatrical technique used in Gothic theatres as a way of having ghosts seem to appear and disappear on stage. And it works on the principle that between the audience and the performers on stage, you have a semi-silvered mirror at a 45-degree angle. So anything that is lit below the mirror, in front of the mirror, you see reflected in the mirror, and it appears to be in the same plane as the actors behind. And if the actors are lit, you see them through the mirror. So you can see both the reflection and through the mirror as through a pane of glass at the same time. So in the 19th century, you would have had actors in the orchestra pit being lit, and they'd appear like a ghost next to someone. If you switch the light on them off, they would disappear. We used it more with projection. So we would project an image onto the floor. The audience would see that image reflected in the mirror, but they would also see performers behind the mirror on the stage. So you can work with changes of scale, with people and things appearing or disappearing. Um, you can sometimes bring performers in front of the mirror so you have a different reality as well. So it was it was obviously designed to be seen live in the small performance space we have in Maboneng, downtown Johannesburg. Yeah. But uh, just before the season was due to be held, we had our lockdown for COVID. And so we were able to film some of these performances just before the lockdown and some of them after the lockdown ended and it was possible to work again um, and present them at the, we both presented them online through the center, but then also through the uh, Virtual National Arts Festival. I have to say, isn't it ironic that um, at a time of high, high technology, when everybody's thinking about technology, you have this actually quite simple format which when you look at um, the Peppers Pig production which is on the Virtual National Arts Festival is really actually damn spectacular. I mean it was we were astonished how well it worked because you know my son-in-law had introduced me to this many years ago this technique um, Patrick Eakin Young he'd done some projects with it yeah and we decided to do it as one of the elements of this uh, season seven to say to artists, theatre makers, musicians, is there a project they might be interested in doing with it? And we're just touching the surface of it uh, here and finding what the possibilities are. So it was a kind of improvised learning on our feet by those of us making it also. How do you light it? Where is the projector? What size mirror do you need? What angles does it work from? All of those kind of technical things that are invisible to an audience seeing it, but which you have to master for it to work at all. But then the actual principle of it is very is very simple. And there are wonderful things with changes of scale that you can make in the projections of having a performance of someone who would disappear, overlaid performances, so someone's real face is on top of a projected face and 
Um, it's 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 extraordinary. I mean, the first the first um, piece really does have this strange little weird little character that uh, flings itself around the room, and quite quite just fabulous. But what what was so fabulous about it was that actually when you when you see how it's done, actually no, this is quite easy and we've spent so many years with green screens and blah 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 and actually you can do it in a completely different yes. way. I love that. That. Was, that, was, that was a Kafka short story, Odredek, oh. which uh, Amira Patel and Francis Slabaletsi made, which takes a Kafka short story you know, which is a paragraph long and turns it into this five minute, very beautiful um, performance. Oh, it's, it's ex- in which you can, one of them, Amira, can shrink herself down so she could fit in your hand. <laughs> Completely convincingly, uh, next to the full-sized Francis. Yeah. We do have your first guest, William. Uh, Paula Ukaditsi, Paula, Paula Opala, who is an actor, a director. Tell us about your first guest. Well, Paula is is a director. I've known him as a director. And then a year ago, invited him to come right in to help run the Center for the Less Good Idea. So here's what is known as the animateur, the person who not only is a, he's not specifically an artistic director, the different artistic directors of different seasons, but he functions as a de facto artistic director, but also as a administrator and person running it, but primarily the person who has to gather the energy to keep the center running. And I mean, over the four years that we've been going, I think we're somewhere between 400 and 500 different performers, writers, filmmakers, musicians, have been involved with projects at the center. So it's, a, it's both low-key, but it's quite wide-ranging in the number of people. We have two seasons a year. And in the last season, which is the seventh season we've done, Heller and I were the two curators of the season. And it's been a, a wonderfully happy kind of conversation and collaboration. There are many performers that he's introduced me to that I've never come across before. And the conversation about what will constitute the season. Hmm. And it's a kind of, in some ways, a double mentorship when we're looking with younger performers, ways of helping, ways of suggesting things going through. But for both of us, I think we learn a lot uh, from the process of working together on shaping what a coherent season might be, which we're still hoping to show. When, who knows when, it's possible to put 80 people together in a room to do these performances all live. Mm. Pala, thank you so much for joining Hello. us. Thank you, thank you so much. Morning, William. Hi, Pala. Morning. How are you? How are you doing? Good, good. Good, so, good. So, Pala, you're recovering well. Um, I am I recovering am. well. Are we? Are we? I mean, are we allowed to ask uh, who's got COVID? <laughs> Everybody's got COVID. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's Everybody. connected to the season. There are many, many of us who are busy getting through it. And uh, yeah. I, I wish you all strength. What have you found has helped you in getting through it? I mean, the the, um, the, the thing the thing about about COVID is that um, when you are it, it it helps you. I'm just going to say the positive side of it. It helps you get in touch with your body. It helps you be able to listen to your body in a different kind of a way. And and the moment you do that and getting through, you know, with vitamins. And really staying away, staying in indoors, and you know, treating it. You, you, you. It becomes better, you know, in, if you you get it early and you treat it early. 
that's that's basically you know what what has been happening. But otherwise, one has it has also been you know a, a bit of time for one to read and to connect with you know uh, their their bookshelf a little bit more <laughs> because one of the challenges for season seven that we put through to the artists was text. What of text? What you know, how text, you know, um, builds, collapses, you know, and and reforms in, in performance because a lot of times in performance we deal with, with text, but we never really question the text. We really we don't yeah. see, you know, and, and go how malleable it is. And one of the things that we have seen, you know, in, in, in the Peppers Ghost was how the Peppers Ghost as a technology shifts text and performances you know, uh, how one plays with light, one plays with, you know, the reflection in the mirror, how one plays with color, how one plays with appearance and disappearance, with metaphor. And, you know, that's that's one thing that um, one, you know, we like like William was saying, we keep on learning, you know, through the seasons, whether you are a curator, whether you are a seasoned director, or you are a young person who's beginning in the industry. You know, this way of, of doing work and collective practice is always a thinking through, you know, uh, making. And when you are thinking through making ideas that you never thought would come come to the fore. I, I want to jump in, Paula, and, I want, and I'll put this to both of you as well, is you've raised such an interesting thing about words and how words play out and language plays out and scripts and, and narrative and na- plays out and certainly in Pepper's Pig Ghost you see I keep wanting to call it Pepper's Pig it's hilarious and it's not <laughs> hilarious for you but it's like in fact as I said it earlier our entire team started singing Pepper's Pig to me over the over the intercom so it's really quite mm. but was is so if I look at the spectral piece which is around Shakespeare so you, you pull from Shakespeare and yet um, a lot of it is in Isizulu. I'm assuming it's Isizulu, not Isikosa, because I could understand a little bit more of it than I imagined. And then you start to turn the language um, backwards. So it becomes mm. some foreign, weird, weird, weird language. Then, so in that piece, I'm like, suddenly my, my, I felt like my mind was blowing with all these different ways of looking at words given also the visuals we were given. And then we go into the next piece, which was, is it the Joseph Conrad? Yes. And the Outpost yes. of Progress. Outpost of Progress, yeah. And for that piece, I was stunned at, I mean, I've never read that, that, that story, but maybe it was Neil McCarthy's way of acting through it that I suddenly thought, geez, this is, this is a comedy. It's a comedy of errors. It's like absolute... A tragic comedy of, of of massive proportions, and I don't know if it was a, a sort of tragic comedy of what what it was in the real words, but in the performance, it suddenly became something quite strange and fantastical. Well, it is. I mean, it's a it's a short story that Conrad wrote, a, you know, a precursor to Heart of Darkness. Yes, and it is. It's a horror. It's a kind of horror comedy. Yeah, because it is about these two complete. Uh, incompetent colonial administrators yeah. who knew place so very beautifully. But in this kind of comic thing, suddenly you realize, hang on, a whole lot of people have just been swapped into slavery for the sake of a couple of tusks. Mm. And uh, it plays out then as kind of comic grotesque, I would say. Yeah, grotesque, definitely. Um, and it is. Mm. It's a mixture of Conrad's 
clarity about what was happening in the Congo at the time, and uh, Neil's beautiful performance. It's it's both words from Conrad, but it's also a kind of Neil's retelling an audience what Conrad wrote in the story as a kind of description of the story as well as the story. Yeah. Paolo, do you want to um, comment on that? Yes, I mean, the thing that, that is, you know, uh, quite astounding about, you know, some of these performances and starting with Outposts of Progress, it's basically the kind of the language that you see between bodies and, you know, the purpose goes itself. Yeah, I mean, uh, Neil has done quite a, a brilliant, you know, uh, interpretation of the story. And then you have got this, you know, static body of, of Bongi that yes. he passes through. And that is a clear commentary on, on what, you know, uh, uh, the colonialist, colonialism project was about. It was to come and impose and ignore that which exists. You know, and, and that, that story captures it, you know, quite beautifully. But the, the other thing that was quite interesting for me for Outposts of Progress is, is the ownership of the story. You know, because when it begins, you know, he tells you the story like it is. It belongs elsewhere, and as it goes on, you know, he embodies the story. He becomes yes. part of the story. You know, which is quite what happens with you know newness. You know, um, and and you know when somebody you know feels foreign, you know about something, and you know we 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 have had quite interesting you know. Um, pieces, you know, with Spectral, with Audra Deck, with Mayakovsky, you know, Keys to a Poetic Game, in, in finding ways of speaking and representing text and dealing and, you know, uh, working through text. And for me, uh, what we, we, we put together for, for the um, National Arts Festival was just an example of what, you know, working through text means mm. and different ways of interpreting text. Okay, you know, Paula, um, I'm going to have but, to pause you for a moment there because yeah. we do have to go to a break. And I think no that problem. one of the things you've just raised before we go, geez, it made me think about, you talk about um, the who tells the story and how involved they then become in the story. Isn't that also the case yeah. with COVID-19? Um, is that, you know, first of all, it was over there and we were telling the story about the other. Now suddenly it gets mm. closer and we hear about it and now suddenly it is us as well, which just feels... Um, Difficult, um, but maybe also the narrative that we're all following as we go. It's uh, 10 to 10. We do have to go into a break. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. As Scheme Psalm unfolds, Clement built up the courage to speak. He's decided that it was time and the right time to admit his true feelings. Feelings he had been feeling keeping safely deep inside for almost a lifetime. Clement's hope is that his family, friends and community accept and love him unconditionally. To learn more as the story unfolds, catch Scheme Psalm weekdays at half past six on SABC One. Brought to you by SABC Education. Enriching minds, enriching lives. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM, destination unknown. We have two guests on the line. The one is uh, William Kentridge, the artist. The other is the director, Pala Opala. And uh, William, your second guest is unavailable, Kyle Shepard. We have had him on the show, which is a pity because... Uh, he's, a, he's, he's a wonderful pianist. And he's that the also been part of many projects at the centre, but would have been lovely to talk to him, but I'm sorry he's not there. That's okay. He's also uh, just done some wonderful performances online, which were really um, yes. 
fabulous to watch. I think at the Penny Lane studio it was the one yes. that I saw. Really great. Um, Paula, I want to ask you about the working relationship with William. William sort of uh, alluded to it earlier. But uh, what, what stands out for you? No holds barred, pal. <laughs> oh, um, I mean, it's wonderful to work with, with William because of his generosity as an artist. I mean, one of the things that, you know, is quite evident and what one learns from, from William is not being afraid, you know, to fail, you know, and embracing failure in, in, in all, all respects. The center itself is set up on, on that kind of principle. It's, you know, it, it is derived, the name for, for the center is derived from, you know, the Setona proverb that says, which means uh, when the, the good doctor fails, uh, it gives the chance to the less good doctor to heal, yeah. you know, and and that's basically the principle with which we work with at the center, where you know it's a give, giving rise to chance, to accidental discovery and emergence of you know the peripheral thought, and that and and William is an embodiment of of that practice, and also the other thing that is quite lovely to work with William is that. He listens, um, with, even with his experiences. You know, uh, there are many times as co-curators where I'm like, "No, William, uh, we're not going that way," and he will, "Oh, okay, uh, <laughs> all right." He, so, so it is always, you know, um, you know, a pleasure working yeah. with somebody who's who's also he's like a a very, you know, he's like a very young child, you know, looking to discover, looking to get, you know, but. With, with, you know, years and experience of distilling and bringing, you know, things together. So it's wonderful to, to be, to work in an environment where you feel, you know, held and yeah. where you are also able to hold others and also where you feel mentored, but not, you know, talked at, but being able to be seen as an equal uh, contributor. And that is the principle with which you know, William uh, does his work, and that is something that filters through at the center. And that's the principle for why, in the first place, he established the center, is to share and is to bring, you know, artists of multiple disciplines together yeah. just for them to go through, you know, the physical activity of making and thinking through making. So it's one of the most, you know, wonderful experiences um, to work with William. I have never told him that, though, so don't tell him. <laughs> he might. He I've might. He might I've, re- I've recorded that. Color. I'll keep it in my. I'll it's, keep it in my back pocket for emergency. It's it's on okay. I, it's on iono.fm as a podcast, and so that's it. It's a safe for oh. posterity. <laughs> oh my gosh, you, you guys trapped Good. me. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we trapped you. No, so, but it's, yeah. it's also the pleasure working with color, both in terms of the broad picture of what we do in a season, but also watching the detailed work of Pala with his skill as a director, pulling different things out, allowing ideas to emerge from the from the performers, knowing the performers very well, the different individual performers, and seeing how they might interact with someone they've never worked with before. So I'm very appreciative of that, Pala. So Thank you. Thank you, Ilan. Time, time betrays us, as uh, always happens okay. on this show. We have very little time left, so I'm going to ask you both to, to, to respond to the last question, which um, I hadn't planned this, but given that you are both uh, recuperating and recovering from COVID-19, what has this time meant for you? You've, you've discussed it um, with regards to reading books and that, 
But there is going to have to be a way forward. And the way forward is a way where the pandemic becomes endemic. It becomes part of our world in so many ways. What does that mean for the artist and the creative? I mean, William, you were saying when we could ever open, you know, the centre again. Well, it's a mixture of the one have working hard to do those things, to reestablish the things we need to, yeah. such as what it is for a group of people to gather together to watch a performance being made in front of them, which is not the same as a Zoom mm-hmm. performance or an online performance, not but not stopping work while waiting for that, understanding there are so many other things that can be done. At the same we've got many other projects busy cooking which will not require the presence of a big audience, but certainly not abandoning that as a, as a goal, as an aim. Uh, for me, it's continuing the work in the studio in which there are so many projects waiting to be completed, to be begun, and hoping that at some point it's possible to travel. I'm longing to see my 97-year-old father. I'm longing to see my six, three, seven-week-old new granddaughter, both of them in London, and... So it feels very actively as a restraint, not being able to do that. So I'm hoping that the next 10 years we're not in lockdown here and unable to travel. I understand for the next months we won't, but I do look forward to seeing them and other members of family and other friends and work colleagues and the whole other world that is there, not just in the studio. From your lips to God's ears. Paula, very briefly, uh, what do you see the future as becoming if we say this is endemic and not just a pandemic, which will end suddenly? I think, you know, um, in the future we would have developed a new language and a new grammar, you know, for dealing with, you know, um, things like lockdown and COVID. COVID is here, yes, it is attacking us, but at the same time it is also giving us a new opportunity to rethink the world, to rethink relationships, um, to rethink the way we connect. Uh, for me, it is it was a challenge of connection. It was a challenge of managed relationships. It was a challenge of you know understanding the world and how fragile and vulnerable we are, and how every industry you know is also vulnerable, much as the arts are. And it's a time for me, you know, for us to to listen you know, to this new language, to this new way of, you know, um, doing things. I know people call it the the new normal, and it could be the new normal, it could be the new unusual, but whatever mm-hmm. it is, is to embrace it and know that, you know, um, the resilience of humanity will will go through, and that will become part of us in many years, you know, to come, and it's for us not to forget you know, this kind of incidences and and fall trapped to them when they come through. Let's move uh, from the new normal to just the new. Thank you very much to our guests. uh, Pala Okaditsi, Pala, an actor and director, and uh, our guest presenter for today, William Kentridge. Wonderful conversation. That's it from us. We are out of here. It's no longer good morning. It's now 10 o'clock, so that means it's goodbye.